have your Bibles, turn with me to the passage that Brett read for us a few moments ago from Acts chapter 5. The craft of preparing a sermon is one that I'm still learning. I hope I'm always learning. Um... I try my best to use different ways of taking the message that I believe God has given. It's kind of like taking Christmas presents and wrapping them in different kinds of paper. The present is the same, but you can wrap it in different kinds of ways. And um, this morning, as as, uh, we look at this section in Acts chapter 5, I centered around some questions. And I think one of the things that we've come to realize about the book of Acts, is that while it is a wonderful collection of historical, factual stories about the birthing of the Jesus movement, the birthing of this movement that would become the church, a group of people called out by God to be sent out to proclaim one word, Jesus. Wonderful glorious, powerful name of Jesus. And the way that Luke crafted under the Holy Spirit's leadership those stories is to present a concept, at least that's the way I see it, a concept that then he fleshes out with stories. They kind of feed back into that concept. So if you remember last week, we talked about those qualities that were going on in the church, what was seen at the end of chapter 4, and, and how, God, how there was unity and grace and, 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 and power and caring. And then we had the story of Barnabas on the one hand and the story of Ananias and Sapphira on the other that kind of underscored those qualities. Well, when we get to this passage in chapter 5, after the death of Ananias and Sapphira, we have, I think, another reminder of what it was that helped the church to have such liberty in this movement. You know, I'm 57 years old. I'll be 58 in January. Some of you, that means I'm a crypt keeper. Others of you, it means I'm I'm a child, okay? But I I was 12 years old in 1972, all right? One of my favorite questions I ask people is, where were you in 72? Because if you're 65 or older, you will never forget Kent State. That will be embedded in your mind. You'll never forget the Chicago 7. He said, don't trust anybody over the age of 35. And now you're in your 60s, and you still don't trust anybody over 35. <laughs> but I was a kid in the 1970s. When the maxi dresses came and the long flowing hair and, 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 the, and the blue jeans became popular, and there was a movement going on. And in the Christian world, the Jesus movement was happening, and there was no stopping those kids. There was no stopping those students at Asbury University when the Holy Spirit broke out on Asbury. They would just get in their car and drive until they saw a church, and they'd say, can we talk to you for a few minutes about what's going on in Wilmore, Kentucky? And they'd say, well, sure. And next thing you know, the Holy Spirit would fall on that church. There was no stopping that movement. And so what Peter, excuse me, what Luke does for us in this passage is he gives us, I think at the beginning of the passage that, that was read, a little bit about what was going on in the life of the church, and then we have some stories to show how God worked that out. 
So look with me right there beginning at verse 12. You see, I think it's like a three-legged stool. There were three parts to the life of the early church that made them balance. So I'm going to start out with what are the three legs that balance us as God's people? Well, I think that in this passage, right at the very beginning, we see three things that helped the church be balanced. The first thing was that the church was passionately involved in interacting with unbelievers where they were. They interacted with people, not by staying in the upper room and inviting people to come to them, although people did, not by staying in their homes, but by getting out on Solomon's portico, on the colonnade, this huge gathering place. You have to remember, in Peter's day, in the disciples' day, in the days of the early church, the courtyard of the temple was the marketplace. That was a place where everybody came at least twice a day, if they could. Once in the morning for the morning sacrifice, and then either at 3 o'clock in the afternoon for the after, afternoon sacrifice and the time of prayer, or at sundown. But people were coming and going constantly inside this huge courtyard outside of the temple. And so what they did was they got out there, it says right there in the, in the end of verse 12, by common consent they would all meet in Solomon's colonnade. So the thing that made this movement so powerful was they weren't hidden. And if there's anything that goes on in the church in America in the 21st century that keeps us from being more effective as a movement, and one of the things that we as a church work really hard not to fall prey to, and that is the fact that we become just another Elks Club that has a building somewhere in town, and people drive by and go, I wonder what they do inside that building. How many times have you driven down 159 and you see that is it, is it the BPOE? Is it the Elks Club? There's one of those, one of those fraternity clubs, and they got their little building there with their nice little sign, and you go, I wonder what they do there. Beloved, every day, thousands of people drive up and down Market Street, and they look across, and they look at this building, and they see the sign, and they say, I wonder what those people do in that building. Well, the way the church found, or the world found out in Peter's day was the church said, let's get out there where they are. And they interacted actively. And that's why I believe that word ecclesia is so important. The second thing that they had, the second quality that they exhibited was they had a humble, don't forget the word humble, but very discernible holiness, godliness about their lives. Now you say, well, pastor, I don't see that in verses 12, 13, and 14. Well, yeah, you're right. You don't see it clearly, but boy, you sure see it toward the end of the verses that we just finished up last week. The church was so committed to godly living and so committed to what Christ said and God was so busy blessing them that when someone stepped out of line, there was an immediate confrontation with that so that could be cleansed. And as we said last week, Peter didn't call down any curses on Ananias and Sapphira. All Peter did was show them the sin that they had committed by lying to the Holy Spirit, lying to the church, debunking or, or disproving the unity that supposedly they were claiming there was in the life of the church. And Father said, you're just going to come home and be with me. I'm not going to let you destroy the work that I am doing by your dissimulation and your lying. And so without them vaunting themselves, being self-righteous, without them thinking they were somehow or another better than everybody else, they were living lives that were discernibly different. You've got to remember, these guys were Jews. Every one of those people that had come to Christ up to this point were all Jews. They still went to the temple. They still prayed. 
And yet there was something about them as they claimed Jesus Christ as the Messiah that made them markedly different. And I've said this before, I want to underscore again, that for the people of Peter's day, for the people of the New Testament day, being Jewish was more than religion, it was a culture. Kind of like being an American. An American small c Christian. Ask the average American at McDonald's tomorrow, hey, are you a Christian? Oh yeah, everybody, I'm an American, all Americans are Christians. It becomes more than a religion, it becomes a culture. So then when they see us living lives that are discernibly different, not that we're vaunting ourselves, not that we're, we're, we're trying to say that we're better than anybody else, not that we don't do this or we do that, just living our lives, it draws attention. The third thing that they had in there was a tremendous exe- exhibition of the power of the Holy Spirit. It was un deniable that the Holy Spirit was working through these people with power. Now, this is where we have to go back and remind ourselves again. And please, if any of you question the approach that I take to the miracles and the things that happen in Scripture, I would love for you to come and let's talk about it because I believe God can do anything today that He did in the pages of Scripture if He chooses to do so. But I believe he is not limited by what's written in the pages of Scripture to what he does. And I guarantee you there is not a greater miracle on the planet than seeing a man or a woman turn from the bondage of their sin to the freedom that they find in a relationship with Jesus Christ. You want to see a miracle. You watch that drunkard come to faith in Christ. You watch that adulterer turned back to a faithful relationship to his wife or her husband. You watch a life be radically transformed by the power of the gospel. That's a miracle. That's something that man can't do. I don't care how many new leaves you turn over in your life. It is not going to happen with human effort. But it will happen with God's power. I mean, so much so that when you get down to verse 15, it says they would actually carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on them. That sounds a little superstitious now, doesn't it? Do you know what? It's no more superstitious than a woman who believed that she could touch the hem of Jesus' garment. She could be cleansed from her issue of blood. And guess what she did? And she was. And by the way, Peter didn't send out flyers saying, now on Thursday I'm going to walk down 2nd Street, so if you'll put your people, I'll try to wave my hand over them and they'll all be healed. Peter was just walking down the street. It wasn't about Peter flaunting any power. It was God's power working through humble servants, living godly lives as they interacted with people where they were. Now stop right there for just a second and say this. Jump to the conclusion, then we'll get back and we'll come to it again in a minute. If we want to live balanced Christian lives, if we want to become part of more than an institution in the society, if we want to be part of a movement that has a sense of motion and and power and influence, we could do much worse than do those three things. Number one, make sure that we are proactively interacting with unbelievers where they are, not necessarily where we are. Now, you say, okay, yeah, we're about to go to the bar. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about interact with lost people on the job, at school, in your neighborhood, on the ball team. Be consciously, proactively thinking about how can I interact with the people around me instead of what we tend to do, I know even I do at times, tend to say, well, I won't talk about that right now. 
I'll invite them on Friday afternoon to come with me to church on Sunday. Then maybe a sun, on Sunday at church, I can talk to them about spiritual things. It's like, dude, they're not going to come onto our turf until we get onto their turf and then live out our lives, not flaunting any godliness, not trying to be self-righteous, just living out humble, discernible lives and watching how God transforms and does his work. Well, you know what happens when you get that in your life, don't you? You know what happens to a church when we begin to get that indelibly implanted into the DNA of our church. You know what happens, don't you? You know what the result is? Opposition. Opposition comes. And it can come from without. It can come from within. And I want to make sure we understand something about opposition. And you've heard me say this in a variety of settings and a variety of times, but I need to continually remind us that the opposition that comes to a believer, to a group of believers, to a church, to a parachurch organization trying to serve the Lord, comes from the enemy of souls. Satan is the crafter of that. And oftentimes his tools are totally unaware that they're being used by the enemy. That person in your office, or in your class at school, or on your block, or on your ball team, or your kid's ball team, is not your enemy. Just let that soak in for just a second. That person is not your enemy. They are bound and being used. It can even be a believer. Ananias and Sapphira, so far as we knew, were believers. We have no reason to think that they were false believers. So even a believer, because we're all sinners, and Satan knows that. Satan has used me as his instrument to hurt other people, my wife, my family, probably some of you. And I've had to go back and ask your forgiveness. Because when our sinfulness gets into the hands of the enemy, he can do some pretty amazing things with somebody that names the name of Christ. Some pretty amazing things can happen. So my point in saying that is we have to recognize and look through the opposition past the person that is the tool of the enemy to the enemy himself. He's the one that we resist. And in doing so, we may just be able to rescue that person from their bondage into life and light. Because you see, in the end, the question we always have to ask ourselves is, who's really in charge here? When opposition begins to come, when your boss says to you, this is the last time I'm going to tell you this, if you name the name of Jesus again here in this office, you will be fired, and I will not give you a reference. You'll be pushing pencils on the street corner if you don't keep your religion to yourself. You ask yourself, who is ultimately in charge in that situation? This passage tells us exactly who is in charge. God is in charge. And don't you ever forget the fact that God is always in charge in those situations. And he loves to show it. He loves to prove it. Look with me at the passage. It says, the high priest, I love it, the high priest took action. He says, listen, we're in charge here. We're not going to let these rabbles do anything to mess up our system. And listen, I want to remind you of something. These members of the Sanhedrin were not evil people. They may appear evil to us. They definitely were the tools of the enemy when it comes to the early church, but they never saw themselves. They were the protectors of Judaism. 
They were the ones who were trying their best to do what they believed God had called them and powered them and given them the position to be able to do. And yet they were being used by the enemy to try to stop this movement of the Holy Spirit. So they said, hmm, we'll show them who's really got control here. And what they did, it says in verse 18, they arrested the apostles, put them in the city jail. Now that's a very important phrase. The city jail is not like the Monroe County prison over Monroe County jail that's kind of hidden over there, kind of behind the post office. I drove around this town for three years before I knew where the jail was. It is so nondescript, a little flat roof building. Oh, no, 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 no. In the first century, the jail was right out there in public. There were no walls to it. There were just bars or, or pieces that were there with guards. And people would throw things at them as they walked by and taunt them. Because they had obeyed the powers that be. They had obeyed the authorities. It was a very public incarceration. Everyone could see who was in jail as they walked down the main streets of town. And so the Sanhedrin said, we'll just shame them out of it. We'll stick them in the jail. Let them spend a night there. And then we'll show them who's in control. We'll bring them in covered in tomatoes and waste, and all that stuff, and they'll grovel before us. They will know then who's really in charge. Now, beloved, let me ask you a question. Did God fail? That's not a rhetorical question. Did God fail here? Did he fail his people? No, no God planned it all the time. God planned the whole thing. Did God want them to go to jail? That's probably pushing it a little too far. But God allowed that to happen. Why? Because for the same reason God does everything he does in Scripture, the same reason he does everything in our world today, to show his glory and to show his power. So Satan, excuse me, so God allowed Satan to get the upper hand for a short time. Remember, Satan is not omniscient. Satan thought, ha, ha, ha. And God said, okay, watch this. And in the middle of the night, the angel comes, frees him, and says, hey, it's a quarter to the sunrise. You just hire yourself back over to the temple. Start preaching when the people come in for the sunrise service. Sun comes up over the temple, and there the twelve are out there preaching away. Now I ask you who's in control. But see, here's the thing we have to remember. Please don't ever forget this because I have to fight it every single day in my life so I know of what I speak. When we are in the midst of the prison, we don't think about, I wonder what God's going to do in this situation. Those of you who were in Bible study this morning, we were talking about the, the waters of Meribah and Massah. We're just grumbling and complaining. Where's God now? I thought God loved me. Why is God letting this happen to me? What did I do wrong? Blah, 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 blah. And God says, I'm going to use this to show my power. And beloved, let me tell you, sometimes the circumstances that he allows us to be in are not laughable. They're horrific. They are excruciatingly painful. I am not in any way belittling the pain but I also must stand before us and remind us that God is working. And He will 
bring glory to himself. He will bring glory. And it may not be till that day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, but he will bring glory to himself. So when they're brought before the Sanhedrin, after they go and pick him up and kind of nervous, but they don't get stoned, so they bring him before the Sanhedrin and they said, didn't we tell you not to preach in this name? Peter tells us in 39 words, 31 in the Greek, 39 in the Holman, 39 words where they found their power. So the third question, the first was, what's a balanced life look like? The second was, what happens when we live that kind of life? The third question is, how do the disciples maintain their strength in the midst of this persecution, in the midst of this difficulty, in the midst of this trial, so that we can also learn how to do it when we go through the prison houses of life and circumstances? You find it right there in verses 30 and 31. In verse 28, the Sanhedrin says, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You're determined to bring this man's blood on us. In verse 29, Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. And then in verses 30 and 31, in, tw- in 39 words, Peter gives the entire gospel. The entire gospel. That is what they focused on. They focused on the good news of Jesus Christ. And those 39 words made all the difference between being fearful and being powerful. And beloved, if we can learn anything today, it is that those 39 words is what will give us the courage and the strength. And it all starts with one word, and that word is Jesus. Their lives were focused on Jesus. Their lives, their future, their destiny, their vision, their hope, their joy, everything focused on Jesus. If you go back and read, now this is the fifth time the gospel has been shared in the book of Acts. And every single time, the focus is on Christ. The focus is on Him. Not on them, not on the message, but on Jesus. But what kind of Jesus? He says in verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus. That doesn't just mean his resurrection. It means he brought Jesus. Jesus was, was one who fulfilled God's plan. God had a plan of redemption to bring a lost world to himself. And Jesus was the one who fulfilled God's plan. How? Through his death, and resurrection, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. It was Jesus' death and his subsequent resurrection that's assumed in the next part that Jesus was able to fulfill God's plan of redemption and is now, by his resurrection and by his ascension to the right hand of the Father, made Lord over all. And I need to stop right there before I finish this thought and remind us that if there's anything that we probably don't talk about enough in our conversation with unbelievers, it's this part right here. And I don't want to take a lot of time to talk about it, but I just want to remind us. We talk a lot about the whole judicial aspect of salvation. Nothing wrong with that. We've sinned against God. We've offended Him. We've broken His law. We have the sentence of death on us. Christ came, died for us 
paid the penalty for our sin by his death on the cross, was resurrected to remind us that death is not the final answer, that there is life to those that put their trust in Jesus Christ. That is all great. But you got to notice that every single time these guys were preaching, they always said, and by the way, then the Father raised him up, ascended him back to his right hand so that he could be ruler and savior of all. In other words, Jesus Christ is the one who's in control. Jesus is Lord of all. He is Lord of all. To what end? To bring repentance and forgiveness. To bring repentance and forgiveness. You see, beloved, this is where the church found their power. They didn't find their power in their organization. They didn't find power in their programs. They didn't find power in anything else except Jesus who was God's plan of redemption through his death and resurrection to be elevated to become Lord of all things. He was the Lord of the Sanhedrin. He's the Lord of Pyongyang. He's the Lord of Moscow. He's the Lord of Washington. He's the Lord of Springfield. He's the Lord of 320 Covington Drive and the Lord of 217 West Rose Lane. He is the Lord of my life. He is the Lord of my sin He is the Lord of every part of who I am. There is not one iota of an atom in the universe that is not under the lordship of Christ. Everything is under his rule and reign. To what end? So that he might be able to bring repentance and forgiveness. And when you go out in that power, who's going to stop you? I just ask you, who's going to stop you? What do you have to be afraid of? Nothing. That's why... Even as, as rough as I was feeling this morning, when we got to that slide, but the powerful name of Jesus. Yes, it is beautiful. Yes, it is glorious. Yes, it is wonderful. Beloved, it is powerful. And I don't mean in some mantra kind of way that if you, you know, put the name of Jesus in your left pocket, you'll, you know, no, I don't. I'm not saying God won't bless you if you keep his name before your eyes constantly. Don't, don't get me wrong. But it comes in acknowledging him as Lord So my question then is, what are our next steps? What do we need to do in our lives? Only you can answer that. If you'll grab your Connect card for just a second, in the lower box on the left-hand side, I think I brought mine up with me. Yeah, I did. Lower box on the left-hand side, there are are three bullet points. And, and, And one of the things that I have to do is I have to shorten it so it fits in the box, which is fine, because you're sitting here, you're listening, the Holy Spirit's working on your heart. We talked about these three areas in our lives. And I'm going to be confessional enough with you just so you understand that I also worked through this in my own life. The the hardest thing for me of these three is the first one. I can blame my job all I want to, okay? In fact, I work around Christians. I work in a church every day. But I am not sincerely praying enough to have the opportunity to interact with non-believers where they are. That may be your next step. So you know what? The first thing I need to do is I just need to start thinking proactively about how can I interact with non-believers more. I understand. Listen, beloved, if you're a believer here today, now if you're not a believer, I want you to know I appreciate you being on kind of on our turf today. Not that you're not welcome. We love you. But understand, sometimes we have a hard time getting on your turf. A lot of non-believers don't act the way we do. They don't talk the way we do. They don't have the same value set that we have. You know what? That's one reason why we need to be out there where they are. But it all starts with proactively asking the Lord to help us interact 
with non-believers. And I don't necessarily think these are in an order, okay, but for me, that's the hardest. The second thing we need to think about is not just praying for opportunities to interact with unbelievers, but praying for humble but discernible godliness or holiness in our lives every day. I know the word holiness bothers some of us, and I'm sorry, it surely shouldn't. But if you, want, if you prefer to say godliness, the, the bottom line is the same. We need to live lives that have been so transformed by the blood of Jesus Christ and by the indwelling leadership of the Holy Spirit that people can't help but notice that we're different. I'm going to brag on my wife just a second. She didn't know I was going to do this. I should have asked her permission first. I'm gonna, so you can, you can, where are you at? You can get on to me later. Where'd she go? Oh, there you are. You're not sitting next to your dad today. There is, a, there, is a, there is a thing that goes around Applebee's that the language in the kitchen changes when Miss Sharon walks in the door. And not because she scrowls at him and shakes her finger. They just know. I don't think they even know you're a pastor's wife. Most of them don't. They just know when Miss Sharon is around, we don't need to talk that way. Good. Would to God that was true of every place that we work. And so part of it is we need to live lives. And again, I want to make sure you understood, I'm talking about a humble holiness. Well, no, you know, where I come from, we just don't talk that way. We all know that, and that's okay. I'm not saying there's not a right place to say a good word about living a better life or doing things a little differently. But so much time, it just comes through the way that we talk. When everybody else talks ugly about the customer or the new boss or, or the new coach, we're saying, but you know what? He's doing his best. We just need to give him a chance. Let's just... What got into you? you know? Well, I just think we ought to just give the guy a chance. Let's see what he can do, you know? And then the third thing is to pray for the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit in our lives. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of us who it's been a long time since we've seen the Holy Spirit work with power in us and through us as individuals. And we need to say, Lord, I need your spirit to so fill me that without me even realizing it, it's creating an effect by the power of your spirit on the lives. See, I think that's part of Sharon's thing. It's not so, I mean, I'm, she's a holy person, but not just that. It's the fact that the Holy Spirit living in her just kind of casts a, a, a blanket over the whole workplace. And so the power of the Holy Spirit changing lives we will come to you and say, I got to know what your secret is. I need, to, I need to be more like you. I need to be more patient. I need to be more, more kind, more, more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient. And we have the chance to share what Christ has done in our lives. So as we pray, I want you to be thinking, and then I want you to mark any one of those, or more than one if you need to, that God is working on in your life. So that we might be a church that has those three legs on the stool of our faith as we interact with those around us, as we live humble but discernibly godly lives, and as people see the power of God's Spirit working. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for once again taking the example of Peter and the eleven and reminding us that what you did in their lives, you want to do today in ours. 
that you want to create a movement of people who scatter from this building to be the church. Not just to come and do church, but to be the church. As we interact with unbelievers where they are, not just have them come where we are. To interact and to let our lives, without any sense of pride, but just the, the lives and the way we act and the things that we do and the way that we talk and the decisions that we make to overflow out from us. So that your power, by your spirit that dwells in us, can bring about transformation and miracles in the lives of people around us. But Father, in order for us to do that, we have to surrender who we are. We all have our little piles in the closets of our heart that we cherish. And just like you said in Revelation 3, you come to that closet door and you knock because you need to be Lord of all of our lives. Whatever it is that we're holding back, Lord, from you today, I pray that we will surrender it. Every iota of our being, may we become Jesus people, not church people, not Christian people, not Baptist people, Jesus people so that the last word on our breath as we slip into eternity would be the name of Jesus let us be those kind of people today we ask in Jesus name Amen would you stand with